Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today it's story time. The story is called If Emptiness Had a Tongue, Who Would Have It? We like to tell. We also like to show. Sometimes we tell by showing. Sometimes we show by telling. Writers are supposed to show. They also tell. Perhaps we could leap beyond showing and telling. Maybe we can just evoke. Let me evoke something from the hologram of my mind. Evoke it in the hologram of your mind. It was the first day of school for me, first grade. I had transferred in during kindergarten the year before, and I had no idea what to do on the first day of school at this school. You see, the kindergarten classes were segregated from the rest of the school, so I didn't know where first graders should go. This only dawned on me when I stepped off the bus that morning. Nora Jameson, nurturing little 11-year-old, one of my earliest crushes and still strongly present in my anima, she sensed my confusion and kindly escorted me down the hallways of shiny, soft pink tiles and glittering granite floors. I still remember the vague smell of lemon in the air from the floor cleaner used by the janitor, the scent distracting me from the far more pleasant aroma of Shalimar that Nora must have snuck from her mother's vanity. The same hallways looked so minuscule when, as many have, I happened to wander into them years later as a full-grown man, physically full-grown. It seemed during that return that the child me had gone to school in Lilliput, but on that first day of school, I was among the Brobdignagians. Nora knew where she was going and this accentuated my awareness that I did not. She held my hand tenderly, but walked with a clear sense of direction, the way a trainer leads a horse out of the stable. My extremities still tend toward coolness, whether I'm nervous or not, and her hand felt reassuringly warm as we walked. We went up a ramp, turned to the left, and walked down the hallway to the furthest door on the right, the names of students were printed on a list taped to the wall outside the door. Nora, in her first day of school outfit, of which she must have been very proud, scanned the list and found my name. Oh, she said, this is it. You're in Mrs. Kennedy's class. You'll like her. She's very nice. She was my teacher, too. My little boy heart perked up at those words the same teacher Nora Jameson had. What a delight! Surely we could be married one day. Nora smiled and said her goodbye, sending me into the room. I can't tell you what happened next. Can't show you either. This is just backstory anyway. What we have to get to is Michael Murphy. Did I see Michael Murphy that first day of school? Surely we all must have. But we forget so much 
perhaps from not enough telling. As much telling as we do, we never tell at all. Nor do we tell the best things in the best ways. We've lost ourselves. Let literacy take us out of the living web of speech. And thus forgot how to listen and tell, how to evoke and orient, how to conjure through the sound of the voice, the melodic mind and the sensitive body that feels the vibrations of mantras beaming out of beings high and low, out of rocks and trees, pronouncements rooted in placeness, words that weave us into being, the magic of imagination coming alive. Even so, even in our current state of living, how we tell and what we tell dodges, burns, and fixes the holographic film of the mind over and over again. Memory always works in a living way, and our only real knowledge is a living knowing, dancing in spirals, spirals that bind or spirals that free. Here's what anyone at all can remember of Michael Murphy, no matter their manner of speaking or living. Long-sleeve flannels or cotton t-shirts, or both, sneakers or duck boots, jeans but never pants or shorts, and a face like burning embers. Why the red face, Michael Murphy? Sheer social terror. In winter, we could have gathered around that face to warm our hands during snowball fights. And how long did it take for him to speak? Didn't it take until the first blusters of winter? Wasn't there snow on the ground? Michael Murphy sat in the back as I did, but on the far left of the room I sat far right. First grade. Is this why even now I have preferred the back row in any classroom setting? Mrs. Kennedy started on Michael's side of the room each time we had show and tell. With whom did she begin? Was it Branna McMahon, the first crush of my childhood, other than Wonder Woman, and Nora Jameson, of course, and the Virgin Mary? Just kidding, sort of. Ours is not to reason with the id, but to work with it. Ah, Branna McMahon. She would never let me sit next to her on the bus. Perhaps this explains the inability to clearly recall her presence in the class. Ah, the heart. The heart and the hologram. The things we tell, the things we show, even to ourselves, especially to ourselves. I can still see her little girl knees pushing against the seat of the bus, barring me entry to the open space next to her, like a bear blocking entrance to an alluring cave. What would I have said if she had let me sit next to her? Probably nothing. Maybe I had a joke or two up my sleeve, or some other intimate yet childly innocent show-and-tell seduction. While each time we had show-and-tell in class, Mrs. Kennedy would invite us one by one to show or to tell. When she came to Michael Murphy... She would ask, quite gently, Michael Murphy, would you like to share something with the class? Michael's big round face would burst into flames, 
a roaring fire from under the skin, his complexion turning him into a child of the Lightbringer. He made no eye contact, not with Mrs. Murphy, not with anyone. He looked down, burning, and shook his head firmly. No way. I can still feel that no way. Feel it from his hot face and his tense little body. No way would Michael Murphy speak out loud, not even from his seat. Imagine how much worse the suggestion to go to the front of the room and speak to everyone present. He would surely have chosen the torments of hell before choosing to speak in front of the class. To suffer even the question rattled his little boy's soul as anyone could plainly see. How often did we have show-and-tell? Once a week? Twice? Daily? At least once a week, I think. But how many shows or tells have left their mark on the hologram of my animal mind? How many times did Michael Murphy, psyche reeling, turn his face apple-red, look down in awkward silence and shake his head vigorously, How many times have we all done what amounts to the very same thing when the voice of life itself asked us to show or to tell? And of course, life couldn't give a damn about the things we get addicted to showing and telling. How easy to show off a new car or tell everyone about the boss man's latest bastardry. Life, instead, asks us to show love and compassion, or to tell a difficult truth, to shine wisdom in a dark place, to show calmness in the face of a storm, to navigate in nakedness, steer bravely and beautifully through something tragic or unknown. Do our heads shake in silence at such moments, saying, No way. Do our souls shake in meekness and self-doubt? Maybe you think you know already what I will tell you. Maybe, even unconsciously, you think you know what I want to show you. But can you see it? Who will see it? You say, I will see it. But can you show me who that is? One day, Mrs. Kennedy said, Michael Murphy, do you have anything you would like to share with the class? May the gods and goddesses smile on every last one of us. May the sisters of mercy bless us all as they unfold and enfold our lives in the hologram of the cosmos. I tell you this in a state of ecstasy. Michael Murphy stood up and he bloody well walked to the front of that classroom. Each of us present that day must have had our eyes sparked, jaws stuck, breath still. Still. It is in still water that we can best see our own reflection, or, as my brother Yates put it, when we make ourselves into still water, all beings, all 
beings can see themselves clearly, can live and love with a heightened lucidity and even a compassionate fierceness and a wild wisdom because of our sacred calm. But I wonder what we saw. Michael Murphy had remained silent for weeks on end. We all assumed he could speak. Surely Mrs. Kennedy would know if he couldn't actually speak. So he could speak, but chose not to. What a thing. And what kind of thing could undo that? What could possibly free Michael Murphy from his silence? Something of decisive importance, no doubt. Had aliens landed in his yard, would Michael Murphy now tell us he had seen aliens? If not aliens, then how about astronauts? Would he tell us astronauts had landed in his yard? Would he tell us that he had gotten a phone call from the president? Had he played catch with a famous athlete? What on earth would Michael Murphy tell us? Would he show us something? A diamond dug up from the garden, a pot of gold from a leprechaun? What could douse the fires of his timid psyche? What could undo the knots? You might accuse me of belaboring a point, running the story aground into needless suspense. But we need to make space in the soul for spiritual sparks to shed light, for their fire to burn away our veils of ignorance. I'm a philosophical type. Believe me when I tell you. Make me a cup of tea some day, and I'll even show you. You can tell me your problems, but you'll show most of it in your walk, in the connection you make when you shake my hand, in the way you settle into your seat, in the stability of your awareness, and in the micro-expressions of your face as we begin to converse. Your face could launch a thousand ships of thought in the mind. But we philosophical types hold a steady course to Ithaca. And what of those times when we sit in silence with someone, knowing, feeling keenly, that we have nothing to say? The silence has no threads of connection laced through it, like a metaphysical netting. We find ourselves caught up in something, but not the diamond net of Indra, just a zirconium net of ego. We have nothing to say or want to say nothing. And by this we show it all, don't we? Michael Murphy showed something too. From the moment he stood up, His face had something mythical in it, mystical even. But we would have to take the full journey with him to find out about his Ithaca. His problem was known to all. What could resolve it? We might ask what could undo his silence. But we might also ask what could undo our own chatter What could undo fear or craving? What could undo mindlessness and obstructions? Quietly, 
With a roguish, angelic smile, Michael Murphy rose from his desk and walked to the front of the classroom. He took that walk like a stroll in the garden. He stood in the front of the classroom and looked at us. We waited. He said, Yesterday, when I got home from school, my dog jumped on me. As he said this, he gestured with his hands, indicating clearly that the dog had landed his paws on either side of Michael Murphy's heart. You could picture it, that dog jumping, leaping up in exuberance to greet his little boy companion. A vibrant, ingenuous joy. Michael Murphy's smile bloomed, his face becoming a bright red flower in the sky. He paused a moment, that smile filling the room. And then he returned to his seat. What did we think? What went through our minds, our bodies, our hearts and holograms? How many of us thought that this was the stupidest thing we had ever heard? People brought fancy toys to show, bounded to the front of the room with outlandish tales to tell. One yearned for toys like those to play with. One longed for a more interesting life, a life filled with expensive playthings and remarkable happenings. In the midst of this, and after weeks and weeks of abject silence, tortured silence, Michael Murphy announced to us that he had gone home and his dog had jumped on him. He announced it like a Zen monk resolving a case of spiritual common law. What is the sound of one hand clapping? My dog jumped on me. Does a dog have Buddha nature? Yes, in fact he does. And it sounds like this. You're home! Of all the shows and tells I heard in all my years of school, how many do I recall? Not a single one, except this one. With effort, I might rustle up one of my own shows or tells, but without much clarity. How about those of my best friend, Patrick O'Brien? Wading into the hologram of the heart-mind, something might emerge, fuzzy and indistinct. But a concrete moment, a specific phrase, nary a one, except this. My dog jumped on me. At what point do we become too jaded to notice the profundity of this expression? At what point do we pass by the sweetness of this offering, Michael Murphy's life, hanging before us as a ripened fruit? Did it ripen of its own accord? Do you imagine that he ripened it, whatever that could mean? Imagine that he went home that day determined to discover something to show or to tell. Or imagine he went home thinking nothing at all of the matter. 
Or imagine he went home pained to the bone and at a loss as to how to ease that pain, how to bring calm to his crawling skin, his burning flesh, his aching marrow. Perhaps he had given up completely. He went home having given up. There was nothing to worry over because he couldn't solve the problem. Then, suddenly, a dog jumping on him. The cosmos became canine, an intimate friend, leaping in joy. Michael Murphy no longer had a body or a mind. Michael Murphy had no tongue to worry over, no ears to hear his name called, no self-consciousness to light his face on fire. Everything dropped away, and it was just this, just a heart-mind-body-world-cosmos-leaping-paws-pressing-tail-wagging-mouth-smiling-love-and-friendship-dancing-energetically, intimate and immediate. How could anything rival such a marvel? We long to speak, and we sit in stony silence. We speak up, and we put our foot in our own mouth. We want to show love, give love, experience love, express the love we feel. Love passes away, as all things do. Our beloved puppy grows into a dog, and then he gets old. He walks stiffly. We watch him die. Meanwhile, the cockroaches we detest never shrink in number. If you live in New York City and you open up a box of noodles to make pasta, you first check to see how many cockroaches you have in it. Sometimes the loudest sound, the most profound communication, is silence itself. But ask yourself, doesn't the most profound communication arise out of silence as an expression of silence? Just as the Gita tells us that sagehood means seeing the stillness in every movement and the movement in every stillness, mustn't we hear even feel the silence in every sound, and the sound in every silence. Words don't express sounds. They express the silence beneath all sound, the special silence which is itself not the opposite of sound. It's just this. If you have reflections, comments, suggestions, or questions about today's contemplation, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.